five seconds to submergence. Submergence deep into the absurd. Hello, we are back for episode two of the Stranger series. This one's going to be on section two of An Absurd Reasoning. This is uh, chapter one of the myth of Sisyphus. And that is the absurd or absurd walls. So I'm going to share my screen of my notes. I think it's important, you know, to have some transparency with you guys of what I wrote down um, in my notes for the myth of Sisyphus. Just because that way you know that, you know, I'm I actually wrote things down. This isn't me just talking off my ass, right? So let's see. Let's view let's view it. And I will post this on YouTube eventually. I'll post full full episodes of this. I know I've just been posting clips for a while. But I think it's important to have these on YouTube because I realize that some people, you know. There might just be like a, there might be a very small number of people who listen on YouTube, but uh, for that small number, at least they have it, right? At least they have YouTube and not just Spotify. So, absurd walls. So, before we dive into this, I just want to explain this title as a reference of context for the remainder of this episode. Camus will essentially claim that the absurd is the wall we hit in our desire to understand the world and its meaning. But of course, it is absurd walls, not wall. It is plural. We hit several walls in our search for meaning, but each wall leads to yet another wall over and over again. But nonetheless, we keep searching. And our desire to find the final wall that tells us everything, that grand truth of existence, the aforementioned meaning of life, comes into conflict with our awareness that there really is no real end to the number of walls. That is, the absurd in its essence is contradiction. The contradiction, right? A contradiction is when you hit a wall. When you hit a metaphorical wall of understanding, you get to the point where your reasoning gets to a point where you're, oh, this is true. But if this is true, then that means that this is false. But if that's false, that means that my other conclusion is also false. And so that's a contradiction, right? Camus begins with, quote, like great works, deep feelings always mean more than they are conscious of saying. This brings to mind two things. As we discussed in the Fear and Trembling podcast, deep feelings or epiphanies, such as the sensation that God is speaking to us, like in the Abraham example from Fear and Trembling, are often incommunicable to other people. We are unable to speak to other people about this feeling or epiphany precisely because it is an understanding of reality that goes beyond our own capacity to translate into words. So when, when we get an epiphany or some kind of deep understanding, we uh, a, a lot of times we're unable 
to translate that understanding to other people, or at least in such a way that they get that very same epiphany that we had, right? And once we try to speak about our feelings or epiphany, like I just said, um, it it can't be translated. And because it can't be translated, it or the reason why it can't be translated is because it's immediately downgraded from the original meaning we had in our head when we first had the idea. Right. So like we're um, when we first have some kind of grand idea, our mind is going crazy. We're like, oh, my God, like I just found that out. I just realized that that's crazy. That's a crazy thought. Then we go and we try to say it or we write it down. When we write it down, we read it. It doesn't seem as great. We're like, oh, that's it's not. I just don't because we don't get that same feeling attached to it. And that feeling is our understanding. Feeling and understanding coexist when we have an epiphany, right? And so as Nietzsche says, quote, every new ideal from the moment of its birth immediately becomes a retrograde movement. And this also brings to mind Mainlander's concept that the universe is the heat death of God. That is, the universe started off as a perfect unity, i.e. God. Then God died, and this universe is now his chaotic flaming corpse. Using this as a metaphor, our ideas are gods at first, but our translation of them into words essentially destroys them. Or more so, it morphs our idea or ideal into several other similar ideas that slowly over time evolve into something totally different than the original. Uh, it is basically, and, and this kind of relates to Plato's, Plato's idea of the forms, right? Um, that there's some perfect, that everything has some kind of perfect form. That's the idea. It, it's a perfect form. But their reality is something imperfect, something that's uh, kind of an imperfect copy of that original form, right? Mu goes on to say, that, quote, great feelings take with them their own universe, splendid or abject. And I think he means here that when we have a great idea or intense feeling, we often find ourselves in a totally different universe. In context of the absurd, one feels that once they have encountered the absurd, which, quote, at any street corner can strike any man in the face, they have consequently estranged themselves from this universe and are now in the universe that the absurd exists. And in the universe in which the absurd exists, we are entirely alone. It is sort of a, I don't know if you've ever encountered the feeling where you, you discover something new about the world and now it feels like, it feels kind of like uh, you're in a simulation in the sense that this new thing kind of just popped up out of nowhere because you just now realize that it exists, right? Um, that, that's kind of the feeling that he's talking about in the sense that when we, when we encounter the absurd, we feel like we're not in the same world anymore. We feel like we just got the red pill from the matrix, right? We feel like, oh, what? This, that's the absurd? That's, that's crazy, right? Then we, it feels like we just took that pill, that red pill, and that we are no longer in the matrix. We are no longer in that other world in which the absurd had escaped us, in which the absurd didn't exist. 
And in the the universe in which the absurd exists, we are entirely alone. After this, Camus basically lays out his method of analysis by first writing that, quote, it is probably true that a man remains forever unknown to us and that there is in him something irreducible that escapes us. But practically, I know men and I recognize them by their behavior, by the totality of their deeds, by the consequences caused in life by their presence. End quote. Then he claims that people define themselves through their beliefs and their actions, and we can likewise understand at least a climate for who they are. So he, he's saying that while we can't fully understand another human being, we can at least get a glimpse, a climate of them through their actions and what they say they believe. He makes a comparison that the, quote, last pages of a book are already contained in the first few pages, and that, quote, perhaps we shall be able to overtake that elusive feeling of the of absurdity in the different but closely related worlds of intelligence, of the art of living, or of art itself. The climate of absurdity is in the beginning of absurdity. The end is the absurd universe and that attitude of mind which lights the world with its true colors to bring out the privileged and implacable visage which that attitude has discerned in it. End quote. So essentially, he is proposing that he may be able to handle the absurd through art, that is, writing. And this brings to mind Zapp's essay, The Last Messiah. Again, you know, we, we brought this up many times. As Camus essentially suggesting sublimation here. And, and this is interesting because, uh, and I, I don't know if Zapp, or if Camus ever read Zapp, because that Zapp came before Camus. Um, but if he did, it'd be, it'd be interesting because Zapp claims that that in our facing of death of the reality of death of the reality that we're all going to die that um and this fear zap claims that sublimation or uh the, the creation of art sublimating our despair into art is one way we tackle the fear of death we we face it head on right we just we alchemize it into something else into something beautiful and in a sense, that's what Camus is doing here with his essay. That's what he did with The Stranger. That's what he did with all of the things that he writes. He does sublimation. And in that sense, that that's that's sort of my critique on Camus because um, he embraces the absurd by writing about it, in, in a sense. right? Um, and for, for many of us, we, you know, we aren't artistic. We aren't writers. We can't sublimate the absurd we can't sublimate the fear of death so we have to resort to the other three methods that zap lays out right um that's just a little side tangent there so following this we have an important paragraph quote all great deeds and all great thoughts have a ridiculous beginning great works are often born on a street corner or in a restaurant's revolving door so it is with absurdity 
The absurd world, more than others, derives its nobility from that abject birth. In certain situations, replying nothing when asked what one is thinking about may be pretense in a man. Those who are loved are well aware of this, but if that reply is sincere, if it symbolizes that odd state of soul in which the void becomes eloquent, in which the chain of daily gestures is broken, in which the heart vainly seeks the link that will connect it again, then it is, as it were, the first sign of absurdity. End quote. Camus brings up two different origins of the absurd here. The first is from having a random thought for a ridiculous reason. By ridiculous, I think Camus means random. We are struck with ideas at random and in such a way that it feels as though such ideas simply came to us rather than us coming up with them ourselves out of thin air. Our inability to know where our ideas come from mixed with our astonishment at such ideas is what gives random thoughts the feeling of absurdity. And the second absurd origin are those times in which we're literally thinking of nothing. In these moments, the mind is directed outward rather than inward, and so we are struck with a feeling of estrangement, which is consequently the feeling of absurdity. We feel this estrangement because it seems as though it is the first time we ever looked at the real world. Being trapped in our heads creates a separation between us and the world. As our thoughts familiarize the world and therefore make it as abstract as the mind itself. Removing any connection we had to the world. To the contrary, shifting our attention to the world connects us to it and thereby makes it new, exciting, and strange. So that, that's kind of weird there, right? Uh, there's kind of having a disconnect from the world being disconnected from the world we feel more connected to it in a sense Be being disconnected from the world it is not strange because when we're disconnected from the world um, the world becomes familiar because we are trapped within our own head and by being trapped in our own head we make the world uh, we basically subject our head into the world making it familiar right but but really we're disconnected from the world there's an illusion of connection but when we notice our disconnection from the world that's when we feel the most connected to it because now we understand that our feeling of connection was an illusion and so the world becomes new it becomes exciting it becomes strange so Camus then introduces the main concept within the final chapter of the essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, which is interesting because not a page before this, he mentioned that the last few pages of a book are contained in the first few. This won't be a direct quote, but most of what he writes, quote, Rising, streetcar, four hours in the office or the factory, meal, streetcar, four hours of work, meal, sleep, and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, according to the same rhythm. This path is essentially most of the time. It's easily followed most of the time. But one day, the why arises, and everything begins in that weariness, hinged with amazement. Begins. This is important. 
Weariness comes at the end of the acts of a mechanical life. But at the same time, it inaugurates the impulse of consciousness. It awakens consciousness and provokes what follows. What follows is the gradual return into the chain, or it is the definitive awakening. At the end of the awakening comes, in time, the consequence, suicide or recovery. In itself, weariness has something sickening about it. Here, I must conclude that it is good, for everything begins with consciousness, and nothing is worth anything except through it. Ooh, so this is, a, that last little quote there is very important. And you'll see why it's important if you read the last chapter of the myth of Sisyphus, um, because one must imagine Sisyphus happy, right? I conclude that it is good. So basically, Camus is pointing out that as we go about our mundane, routine lives, there comes a point when we ask, why? That is, we ask, what is the point of all this? What is the point? Why? And for Sisyphus, this happens when the boulder is rolling down the hill. We ask why at the point in which we feel as though the rock we've been pushing has slipped away from us. That is, we ask why when we feel as though the purpose of our task, whatever it may be, has become absurd and ridiculous. Then, once we reach the end of our reasoning, once the boulder hits the bottom of the hill, we then commit suicide or somehow recover. And while there's something nauseating about it all, as Sartre would say, Camus still claims that this nausea is sickening. Or that this, this nausea, this sickening, is still a good thing, precisely because it comes through consciousness. This brings to mind the Socrates quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. And to that point, the very thing that causes us to question the value of our life is likewise the thing that gives that life its value. And this uh, this is an interesting concept here, right? Because so I remember earlier in the essay, in the, in, in the first section, he was saying how people will often die for the things that make their life worth living. And it is here that he's saying that since the unexamined life is not worth living, that means that the very thing that causes us to question the value of our life is likewise the thing that gives that life its value. So that there's a parallel here between between those two modes of thought. Now, Camus then claims that time is man's worst enemy, or at least most people. The recognition of one's age simultaneously causes one to take their place in time, consequently belonging to it. He admits that he stands at a point on a curve that he acknowledges having to travel to its end. And in that sense, by belonging to time and longing for tomorrow or a vacation or anything related to the future, one is consequently longing for death since death is in the future. Mu writes that this is a, quote, revolt of the flesh. That is, the body is revolting against, against its own existence by longing for the future. And this for Camus is the absurd. Because, because we're, 
right? Because we're if we're longing for the future, and the future doesn't exist, only now exists, then this is almost our revolt against being alive. This is a revolt, a rebellion against our own existence. Because living in the now is accepting that we're alive and being happy with our current moment and being happy with existing now, not in the future. But longing for the future, longing for something that doesn't exist is akin to longing for death. Okay. So, quote, at the heart of all beauty lies something inhuman. What Camus is saying here is that beauty is so powerful that it takes us away from our minds and focuses our attention on something outside of our minds. Such is inhuman as it separates us from our own humanity. Thoughts. As such, the world becomes strange and seems as though we are looking at it for the first time. And quote, likewise, the stranger who at certain seconds comes to meet us in a mirror, the familiar and yet alarming brother we encounter in our photographs is also the absurd, end quote. Now ask yourself, how many times have you looked at your reflection or a photo of you and thought, is that really me? Such a feeling is the feeling of absurdity. So struck with the nuances of reality, even our own body and face are hardly recognizable. You look at yourself and you're like, is, is that is that really me? You get kind of drawn to the fact that that while you're in this body, it is kind of still just a body. And you can't always feel totally connected to your own body, just as you can't be connected to the world itself. Because you can't really know it, right? Camus brings up an important point about death a little bit after this. Quote, one will never be sufficiently surprised that everyone lives as if no one knew. This is because in reality, there is no experience of death. Properly speaking, nothing has been experienced but what has been lived and made conscious. This kind of, this brings us back to, you know, a, a page earlier when we were talking about how we can't experience a future, right? So longing for the future is longing for something that can't be experienced. And likewise, this is how longing for the future is related to, is basically akin to longing for death. Because in both cases, we're longing for something that doesn't exist, that can't be experienced. So what makes death such an experience is not entirely the fact that it is unknown, but rather that everyone is fully aware of how unknown it is. We are not surprised that no one knows what happens after death. In fact, we would be surprised if someone did know, right? Not only would we be surprised, but we simply wouldn't believe it. So on the following page, Camus states that, quote, as soon as thought reflects on itself, what it first discovers is a contradiction. This is the classic high school existential thought that one experiences in their bed at night. One stares at their ceiling and a thought occurs to them. Quote, how do I exist? Or 
How does anything exist? The answers that follow are a storm of contradictions that end up not making any sense and merely brings on more confusion. So in this state, we're accompanied by what Nietzsche refers to as the myth of causality. That is our why game or our Socratic method goes on until we realize that it can continue going on indefinitely. This lack of a, quote, first cause inevitably brings us directly back to the absurd. Following this, Camus writes, quote, the mind's deepest desire, even in its most elaborate operation, parallels man's unconscious feeling in the face of his universe. It is an insistence upon familiarity, an appetite for clarity. Understanding the world for a man is reducing it to the human, stamping it with his seal. And this, again, brings up Nietzsche and his essay on truth and lie in an extramoral sense. Our appetite familiarity leads us to name things, stamp it with, its, with our seal, right? Language, I believe, is the seal in which Camus is referring to here. The On Truth and Lie essay points out that language is a making of unequal things into equals. For instance, all leaves, even though each individual leaf is different, are still called a leaf. That is, all leaves are set equal to the word leaf. But all leaves are, in fact, very much different. And so the awareness that all leaves are different, that they cannot really truly be summed up with the word leaf, causes an estrangement from our reality. That is, the world is no longer familiar once we realize that our words do not sufficiently capture the inherent uniqueness of all things. This argument goes further when we take into account the fact that most people refer to their consciousness as their internal dialogue. If our words are, more or less, illusions, then our entire identity is likewise an illusion. And if we understand our reality through this made-up identity, then our reality is likewise made up. Our reality, after all, is the brain's translation of stimuli in its environment. And if our words are a translation of this, in, of this translation, then we are quite literally strangers to the real world. In that sense, everything is both familiar and unfamiliar. It is familiar in the sense that everything is a product of our minds, yet it is unfamiliar for that very same reason. There is no subjective real world. So Camus further claims that if we were to put all things we know to the test, it would upset our whole life. This is the, quote, there is only one thing I know for certain that I know nothing at all. True knowledge of reality is impossible, not only because of the myth of causality, but likewise because our words, by default, cannot express true knowledge, only relative knowledge. Because words are a series of relationships, right? And so since any knowledge can be put to the test, and consequently it will fail that test, our whole life can then be upset. And as humans, we often base our identity and livelihood on what we believe we know. And if everything we believe we know is false, or at least not fully known or fully understood, then what does that make of our identity? 
quote, between the certainty I have of my existence and the content I try to give to that assurance, the gap will never be filled. Forever I shall be a stranger to myself. Socrates's know thyself has as much value as be virtuous. So this is a very, this is controversial because this is Camus criticizing Socrates, one of the greatest philosophers um, ever known to Western culture, right? And of course, Camus was heavily inspired by Nietzsche, who deeply criticized Greek philosophers like Socrates. Now, he's basically saying like, hey, Socrates, I know you're saying know thyself, but there's an impossibility of knowledge. We can't know ourselves, Socrates. Haven't you figured that out yet? We can't know ourselves. Know thyself is akin to saying be virtuous. It just... It doesn't mean anything. It's meaningless. There is no self-knowledge. Self-knowledge is illusory. It's about as much of an illusion as any other form of knowledge. There is no filling the gap between our awareness of our experience of reality and what this reality means. Quote, yet all the knowledge on earth will give me nothing to assure me that this world is mine. You describe it to me, and you teach me to classify it. You enumerate its laws, and in my thirst for knowledge, I admit that they are true. In my thirst for knowledge, I admit that they are true. That is, truth must exist precisely because we thirst for it to exist. There must be truth. Without truth, then everything is a lie. Right. Yet when Nietzsche claims that there is neither truth nor lie, only relative truth and relative lie. <laughs> and not only that, Nietzsche probably claims that truth and lie are both an illusion. Right? They come from our thirst for knowledge. So and, and because of our thirst for knowledge, we must designate things that are not true as lies rather than merely unknown. So I think, in a sense, what Camus is saying here is that the world is literally meaningless. That is, we cannot derive any real, true knowledge or meaning from our reality. Our reality has no meaning. It has no truth, no absolute truth, at least. Because a, a relative truth is not a truth. A relative truth is still something that lacks true knowledge, any real substance to that knowledge. And yet we still long for truth. We still long for absolute truth. We still thirst for it, as Camus says. And the knowledge that our thirst will forever be left unquenched is the absurd. Right? It's like uh, if we're in a desert and we're thirsty, right? but there's absolutely no water. We know that there's no water, but we still desire that water. That is the absurd. So we then get to a quote that if any of you have ever encountered the absurd, you'll relate to it. Quote, from the moment absurdity is recognized, it becomes a passion, the most harrowing of all. Now, this is, of course, the kind of quote an absurdist philosopher will come up with, right? 
it's kind of a like a pat on the back kind of quote right because uh of course we'll want to say that it's the most harrowing of all if we're if we've encountered the absurd then we want to say that it's a very harrowing um philosophy right but let's let's look at it in another lens it it holds true in the sense that the recognition of the absurd comes to us as an epiphany of sorts. And the original meaning of epiphany, if you don't know, is the manifestation of Christ. Over time, it has evolved to merely mean a sudden revelation or insight, right? But the original meaning can more or less be translated to the manifestation of the divine. And the divine is more or less the feeling of passion. So an epiphany is a passionate revelation of some kind of knowledge about our reality. So Camus is saying that the recognition of the absurd is recognized through the guise of an epiphany. So it becomes a passion. And it's a harrowing passion because it is a terrifying realization. The world is meaningless. And not only is the world meaningless, but I cannot stop my desire to find meaning. Right? We're, we're in that desert and we don't have any water, but we're still thirsty. And we know that there is no water in the desert. But yet we still want water. Right? We still long for there to be water. Quote, on the plane of history, such a constancy of two attitudes illustrates the essential passion of man torn between his urge toward unity and the clear vision he may have of the walls enclosing him. So this is basically the, the title. This is the title quote, right? This is what he derives his title, Absurd Walls, of the section from. The passion of the absurd is our indefinite urge to escape its walls. It is the passion of the man who realizes he's in a prison. The passion of Neo when he realizes he's in the Matrix, right? Now, there are some comparison that Camus brings up between other existential philosophers following this. And as a brief summary, besides Herschel, they all more or less claim that rationality can only get you so far until you reach the irrational. But Kierkegaard claims that in our reaching of the irrational and the consequential incomprehensible feeling we get, we can then take a leap of faith, which Camus calls a scandal. And this leap of faith is essentially like being in that desert without water, but saying, well, you know what? There will be water. There will be water. There will be water. Somewhere around here, there will be water. And you just keep on going on with that belief, right? The hope that there will be water somewhere. And so the contrary philosopher that Kumu brings up, the one that he mainly agrees with, is Husserl, which I'm not sure if I'm, pr I'm pronouncing that right, but it's H-U-S-S-E-R-L, Husserl. And he says, quote, on a quite different plane, that of method, Husserl and the phenomenologists, by their very extravagancies, reinstate the world in its diversity and deny the transcendent power of reason. The spiritual universe becomes incalculably enriched through them, end quote. Now, Camus sort of advocates for the phenomenological approach since it separates reality from words and science. In other words, it advocates for knowledge through direct experience and nothing else. Just from what you know to be true, or at least from what you think you know to be true, right? 
um, just from your senses, right? From your ability to see things and hear things, right? I feel this, I feel this glass and it feels like glass or so I conclude that it's glass, right? Um, but even so, such a means for knowledge still leads us right back to the absurd. Even with direct experience, we are still trapped behind absurd walls, right? So I'll leave us, I'll leave us there for now. That's, that's the absurd walls from an absurd reasoning of the myth of Sisyphus. Next episode, we'll go over the section Philosophical Suicide which is more or less Camus' contrapoint to any method of facing absurd that doesn't involve embracing it. Okay. So if you like this podcast and you want to support it, go to the link in the description and buy my book, The Man Who Killed God, or buy some of our merch. We got shirts, bottle openers, so you can pop open a Corona while you listen to the podcast and a couple other fun items so anyhow that's my advertisement and that is the second episode of the myth of sisyphus so we'll catch you next time and uh life is worth living remember that you're loved you're awesome and um don't forget to live life to the fullest every day because there's only so much that you have of it and reach out to the people that you love and tell them you love them because you never know when they're having a down day okay so anyhow take it easy peace out everyone and we'll catch you next time keep on diving into the absurdity